All right, if you have a Bible, it's a tough one. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. So I hope um, you know where it is. It's, it's uh, in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And uh, we are starting this new series, um, and we are talking about family matters. And I must say, um, it's intimidating. Well, not right now because Aaron left, so maybe we might have the chance today. Talk about marriage, talk about a home, because no matter how well you think you have it figured out or how well your marriage is or how well your family is, there's always room for improvement. There's always room where you can work and you can work on things in your marriage and your home, and sometimes it's intimidating. But uh, as we start this series, Family Matters, and what the Bible says about the family and fighting for truth uh, in your family. And you know, we live in an information overload society, right? Um, There's not a topic or a discussion that you cannot find on the internet that has at least 10 or more articles uh, about everything. I mean, if you want to know how to change the spark plugs in a 1975 Chevy truck, chances are someone has put a video or information about changing spark plugs on a 1975 uh, Chevy truck. Or if you want to download a document from iCloud, it will show you how to do it, walk you through it, give you the process of information of doing it. And then also if you want to lose 25 pounds in a week, I don't know who'd want to do that, but uh, I think I found the one how to gain 25 pounds in a week, but uh, You can find videos, you can find information, but the problem is, it's just that. It's just information. Um, The videos can show you, the videos can explain to you, the videos can give you information, but information alone does not solve your problem. Information alone cannot change your life. It cannot change your situation. Um, You still have to do what the information is telling you to do. Um, You have to take that and turn it into wisdom, and turn it into transformation. Just information won't help, because if it would, then all our marriages and all our families would be great and perfect, because there's a lot of information, there's a lot of things that are out there as far as just goes in information. And most of you know that I am in the tile business as well, uh, when I'm not pastoring. And so um, lately, in the last 10 years, anytime we go to do a job, uh, most of the time, somebody's got a picture from Pinterest, all right? And they say, I want my bathroom to look like this. And I say, well, I want your budget to look like this, <laughs> because if you want your bathroom to look like this, it's got to be your budget. But without fail, many times, people say, well, tile's easy. I could tile my own bathroom. I could tile my own job. And so uh, they usually will start it, and then late, later on, they will give me a call and say, well, you know what? It wasn't as easy as YouTube said. Because there's problems. There's, there's not a perfect square wall. There are not perfect level walls. There are not perfectly flat floors. Um, you always have issues. You always have some sort of uh, problem that's going to come. And when it comes, you got to know what to do with it. That's where experience comes in. That's where knowing how to do it, that you've done it so many times before that you know how to do it. And, and the same is true with information in your family and your marriage. If, if your marriage was perfect, if your family had perfect situations and you never had heartaches or troubles or trials, if your kids never got in trouble, if, if your um, wife and you and, uh, never argued or never had disagreements, then that's great. Uh, the information, all that stuff will work great, but it's the problems, it's the trials, it's the heartaches. And so we not only need information, we need transformation. We need to take that information and we need it to transform our hearts. We need it to transform our marriage. We need it to transform our family. 
And so the goal of this series is not just information. I hope that I give you some good information, but my goal is transformation. I would like for you to take this information and let it lead to a transformation, a transformation that changes your marriage, that changes your life, that changes your uh, family. And uh, we all could use that. And notice I didn't say the wives could use that. I didn't say the husbands could use that. I didn't say just the pastor could use that. I said all of us could use that. Because we all have areas and and we have things in our life that can be worked on that can be transformed. And so for me personally, I'm asking God to transform my heart. I'm asking him to do something with God's word that's going to transform my life to make my family better. And I pray you do the same thing. At the outset of this series, we're going to have six or seven messages, and we're going to talk about family. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about kids. We're going to talk about family detours when family go wrong. We're going to talk about a lot of things. And so as you consider this series, I pray that you would ask God to transform something in your life that will transform your marriage, your family, or, or your life, and maybe your attitude. You might have to say, you know what, God, I have a terrible attitude towards my marriage and a terrible attitude towards my children, and God, work on my attitude. Uh, Some of it might be unforgiveness. You might say, I have this unforgiveness that's driving my marriage in the ground or driving my relationship with my kids in the ground, and I need to ask God to transform that in my heart. And it might be just making God the foundation of your marriage. That, that you guys have grown apart from God. And you, when you grow apart from God, you grow apart from each other. And, and you might just need to say, you know what? I want God to be the foundation of my marriage again. I want him to be the foundation of my family again. And right now, I know just as sure as you're sitting here, that there are some that if their family doesn't change... If their marriage doesn't change, it won't exist in another year. That your family is on a breaking point. Your family is heading to a breaking point. And so we all must pray, God, please change my life. Change my heart. Change my attitude. Transform me. And I hope for us as Christians that we're willing to and ready to fight for that. Uh, Part of the sermon series uh, and the title is that I said fighting for biblical truth in family and marriage. Because it is a fight. I've been married for over 21 years. I almost stumbled on that. I had to make sure I get the date right. Uh, And I know you have to fight for your marriage. I know you have to fight for your kids. I I know that it doesn't come easy. If it comes easy, everyone would stay married. Everyone would have a perfect life. Everyone would have a perfect family. But it doesn't happen that way. I know because I have three children. I have been raising three kids, a 19-year-old boy, a 17-year-old boy, and a 12-year-old girl. Yes, I do consider my boys because that's the way I still see them, little boys. And I know firsthand in this world, in this culture, that is constantly attacking marriages, constantly attacking kids, constantly trying to destroy and to conform the kids and conform our marriage and my family into the ways of the world. It's constant. Uh, Throughout my life, throughout uh, social media, throughout what you see on TV, throughout the culture, it's constantly attacking the marriage, attacking family, and trying to squeeze it into its mold. Not to make it better, but to destroy it. Satan has one goal, to kill, steal, and destroy. That's it. And listen, he wants to destroy families. He wants to destroy marriages. And you can say, if you look to our culture, you see it's an all-out attack on that. 
It's an attack on marriage. It's an attack on family. It's an attack on, on those things because he knows how important a family is. The family is very important. Marriages are very important. And for us as Christians, we need to wake up. Everyone else is speaking out. Everyone else is coming out for things they believe in and what they do. And we as Christians need to fight for our families. We, we as husbands, we as, as, as wives and as parents, we need to fight for our kids. Listen, you don't let your kids just go the ways of the world. It's your job as a parent to shepherd them in the ways of Jesus Christ, to lead them into a relationship with Jesus Christ, not to be their best friend, not to make them really good at sports, not to make them really good. All those things are important, but your main goal is to shepherd them into a relationship with Christ. And it's worth fighting for. It's tough. I know, like I said, I, am, I have been there and I'm going through it right now. That, that it's easy to shuffle them off. It's easy to let someone else do it. It's easy not to step up and fight for it. But as husbands, as parents, as wives, we must fight for it. And we must fight for this world, uh, against this world. In Nehemiah chapter 4, I love the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was just a, a, a common man. He was just a, 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 what they would call a lay person. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a preacher. He was just a common man, and there he was uh, in, in living in uh, exile, and uh, he had heard word from one of his friends that Jerusalem had fallen, that Jerusalem was an utter wasteland. And to the Jewish person, I mean, Jerusalem was a status symbol. Jerusalem was like the city of God, and it represented not only just the city, but it represented the spiritual life of the Jewish people. And so he got word that Jerusalem was torn down. The walls were in disarray. They were completely flat because they had built walls around it to protect it from, uh, from the enemies. And, they, and his friend comes back and says, it's terrible. It's completely in shambles. And Nehemiah was like, what? You're kidding me. Like, where were the priests? Where were, where were those prophets? Where were the ones who were supposed to take a stand? Well, they had all sold out to the world. They had all, be, they had all come under um, captivity of the Babylonians. And so Nehemiah says, this can't be like, like, I'm not going to let this happen on my watch. So Nehemiah took a, took, took a stand for God and he asked his king to be able to go to rebuild the walls. And he went there and he began to rebuild the walls and he began to bring back the people and they began to build the walls. But in Nehemiah chapter four, it comes to a showdown. He had, these, he had these people that kept coming to him and kept persecuting him. But then they got to see where he was actually making progress. And so they came up with a plan that they were going to destroy him. Like these people are up there on the wall and they're fighting, they're, 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 they're rebuilding these walls. He said, we're going to attack them. We're going to destroy them. And so the night uh, before it happened, Nehemiah in chapter four, verse 14, he comes to them and he says, listen, uh, guys, and listen, leaders. In verse 14, he says, I looked and I rose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and to all the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Man, I, I, when I read that scripture, I hope that rings true in your heart because it did in mine. That we would be willing to stand on the wall and fight for our sons and fight for our daughters and fight for our marriages and fight for our, for our homes. And, and he says, don't be afraid of them. You know, for us as Christians, we feel like we've been pushed in a closet or shoved to the side and there's nothing we could do. We're poor, pitiful Christians. That's just who we are. 
and everyone can pick on us. And, and a Christian is a doormat that we can just say whatever and do whatever and they just have to take it. No, we as Christians can take a stand. Just like Nehemiah says, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of what your neighbor says. Don't be afraid of what your coworker says. Don't be afraid of what people may say about you. Nehemiah says, don't be afraid, but remember the Lord for he is great and awesome. Like, do we forget the God that we serve? I think a lot of times we look to our marriage and we say, there's no hope for our marriage. Let me tell you, as long as God is on the throne, there's hope for your marriage. Listen, you might say there's no hope for my kids. People who are having children in today's society and people who are going there, they say, why would you ever want kids in a time like this? I tell you why, because the Lord is great and awesome and he is mighty and he can use them and we shouldn't be afraid of this world. We need to remember God. He is great and awesome. And if he did it in the past, he'll do it in the future. He'll do it even now. And he says, fight for your family. Are you willing to fight for your family? If you think you're going to get married and have kids and stroll through this world without a fight, you're crazy. You're crazy. Because you're going to be attacked. You're going to have to pay the price. You're going to have to take, come to a time where you stand up and take a stand and fight for your family. And I hope for this series, not just for me, but for all of us, that we're willing to fight for our families. That this is the call that we're willing to take a stand and say no more. That we want our families transformed. We want to be different in this culture. We want this to be different in our life. And we're willing to fight for it. Listen, most people are not defined by uh, what they stand for. It's what they stand against. And for us as Christians, we must stand against the culture. We must stand against the things that people want to conform our families into. And like Nehemiah says, are you willing to take a stand? Are you willing to fight? And I hope you are. And this morning, as we begin talking about marriage and family, I hope it lights a fire in you. So when you leave this place, you're willing to be the godly husband you're supposed to be. You're willing to be the godly wife you're supposed to be. You're willing to be the godly person you're supposed to be. You're willing to be the godly son or daughter that you will take a stand and you will fight and it will transform your life, transform your family. And you say, well, what is family or why is marriage so important anyways? Why marriage? You know, we have a lot of things talking about marriage. We have a lot of people talking about marriage. We have a lot of people um, uh, beginning to take a look at the subject of marriage and what is actually a marriage, what's defined as marriage and family. But as Christians, we must ask ourselves, what is the source of truth for us? And I hope uh, if you've been coming to this church long enough and you understand how we, uh, how we preach or teach God's word, I hope you know we think and believe the word of God is the source of truth for our lives. It's not just the source of truth for some of our lives. It's the source of truth for all of our lives. And when it comes to marriage, it's no different. When it comes to marriage, if we're going to understand marriage and family, we must do it according to what the Word of God says. According to what the Bible says. And it's important because we are going to uh, study some truth from God's Scripture that is going to challenge you. It's going to challenge what you hear from the culture. It's going to challenge you from what you might have learned from your own family. Uh, what you might have learned from your mom and dad, and what you might have learned the way that you were raised. And listen, I know this is tough because I've been married, and I know uh, when you're raising children, you know, you have to talk about this is the way I was raised, this is the way I was raised. Which one is right? Well, I think my way is better. Well, I think your way is better, or my way is better. But yet, we need to go to God's Word and say, what does God's Word say about it? 
Because no matter how we're raised, if it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's truth, it's truth. And as we go to God's word, we got to be ready to say we're submitting to it regardless of what we see from the culture, regardless of what we may have learned from our family, regardless of what we have learned from our own desires and our own feelings. Um, but we must come to the word of God and it, it is the one that makes it all true. What we find there will define our marriage and define our family. And so Genesis chapter one, as you turn there, um, let's just begin with verse one. All right. I hope most of you know verse one. Um, pretty simple verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right. Listen, God sets the tone in verse one of Genesis. If you don't believe Genesis 1-1, don't read the rest of the Bible, all right? Because Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, who? God. That's it. That it recognizes who God is and that he created the heavens, the earth. And if we come to know and experience the life that God has for us and the marriage and the family, we must realize it comes from one source and it is God. It comes from God. He, he's, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He created male, he created female, he created marriage, he created family, and everything that we uh, see at the rest of the scripture comes from God. Now, unfortunately, it has been marred by sin. There is uh, original design has been broken. There is a function that has happened that's not rooted in God. But yet for us as Christians, we must not go by what is wrong. We got to go by what's right. And what is right is that God is the one who begins it all. He's the creator of all. And we must submit to him as our ultimate authority. He is the one. And listen, culture does not call the shots for us. If you go and you see movies or you see entertainment, that does not tell you how your marriage or your family should be. That shouldn't set the standards for your home. Other people shouldn't set the standards from your home. Listen, we heard this a lot uh, when we were raising our kids. They would come home and say, well, she gets to watch this or they get to do this at their house. It's like, okay, if you want to go live with them, that's fine. But if you're living here, you're not going to do that. Like, this is our house. This is my rules. This is what God has called me to do. And if you're living in my house, then I'm going to call the shots. When I was growing up, every time that I thought I was real cool, that's what my dad would tell me. All right, if you want to do it your way, then go do it your way. You got to cook your own food. He had me at that one right there. It's like, oh, never mind. Forget that. You're going to take away mama's meals. And you're not going to eat with mom. You're not going to eat with us. You're not. You're going to have to pay your own bills. You're going to have to get your own job. You're going to do all those things. And so I took about a half a mile trip around the block and decided to come right on back. <laughs> sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. <laughs> Changed my mind real quick. But listen, when you come to your marriage, when you come to the things of God, uh, when you come to marriage and family, God calls the shots, not culture, not your friends, not your family. That It is God. He created the world. If you don't like that, go create your own world. Because when it comes to what the culture says or what you feel, or what you believe, it's not that what you have is so important as what God has said. And in the problems in our world today, it's created by man, not God. God has created marriage. God has created a family. God has created these things, and they're good things. They are honorable things. But yes, culture has come, and culture has made problems, and sin has marred marriage and marred families, but you just don't throw it away. You don't just say it's not worth fighting for. It's not worth having that. We can make our own way. We, we need to redefine marriage, that, that marriage is some cultural norm of the past. 
That's why our world's so bad today, because the culture uh, then is not the same as now, so it doesn't mean anything anymore. No, it's far more than just a cultural thing. It's a God thing. That God created the heavens and the earth, and in His ways we must submit to those things. And the truth is that God is a designer, and He is a creator, and He created all things in this world. He created marriage, He created family, and if we're going to have a successful marriage and a, a successful family, we must do it by the principles of God, period. Not of what you think or what you feel, but because of the principles of God. So if you drop down a few verses, uh, actually about 25 verses, you'll see verses 26 and 28. And we'll dig in uh, talking about a man and woman and talking about marriage. Verse 26, God continues and he says, uh, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Sounds, sounds creepy, doesn't it? Every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. But as you read this, you realize man is made, what? By the image of God. That God, man was made in our image. By the way, uh, that's plural. If you say Trinity's not in the Bible, you didn't read Genesis chapter 1. There's already hints of it right there. That we made man in our image. Let us make man in our image. Uh, that is plural. That is the Trinity of God. He says, for us, let's make him in the image of God, and that's in God's likeness. And you, you think about it, all mankind was made in the image of God. That's why it's so important that when we find our value, we don't find our value in the world, we find our value in God, the Creator. And the reason why mankind has value is because we were made in the image of God. Listen, when you believe this, that's why you want to protect the unborn. That's why you want to protect children. That's why you want to protect every form of life, every life uh, that we have, whether old or young or, or sin-ridden or um, disease-ridden, that it's valuable before God because they were made in God's image, that we are to protect life. We are to look to mankind and say they were made in the image of God, period. There, there's, no other, there's no wiggle room there. It is made to the highest order of the universe, so much so that he says, I give you dominion over everything else. You can love animals, you can love your dogs, you can love your cats. I'm not really sure why you would love cats, but some of you might, well, I like cats. I do. Just not when I'm around, that's all. I, they taste like chicken. I don't know what I'm just tasting. That's... I, young, you guys don't pay attention to the things that you're supposed to pay attention to. Uh, he's made everything, but when you think about it, the fish, the seas, the birds of the air, the cattle, all those things are great things, but that's not the highest form of the universe. What is the highest form of creation? Mankind is. And listen, for us, and when you get to Romans, you start to realize in a culture that would rather worship the creation than the creator, there's a problem there. There's a problem because we begin to worship the creation more than we do the creator. And we begin to worship the things of the world more than we do the value, more than we value the worth of mankind. I'm going to tell you for a culture that would rather protect creation rather than a human life. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that because we, we don't believe that we were made in the image of God. And for us as Christians, we have a high value of who we are because we were made in the image of God. Every single person. And that's why when I look to every single person, not only are they made in the image of God, but they have an opportunity to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. Listen, there's no lost cause with God. 
There's no mistake with God. There's no, oh, I didn't create that or that's not part of what I had. No, that God made every single human being and they were made in the image of God and we must value that. And as we value that, we see that God is in control. And as he created them, he says in verse 27, as he continues, he created him man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him uh, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you look now and he says, he created them, male and female. I know there's a lot of discussion in our culture about male and female, about genders. Uh, Here in the Bible, it's very clear. This is where Christians stand. If you believe the word of God and you believe in God, this is where you stand on the gender issue. God created them, male and female. That's it. That's all the Bible says about that. That, that it, is, it is case closed, male or female. And, and if you think about it uh, and, and you say, well, I don't know, male or female, how do I know which one I am? How did God create you? I mean, we could talk about plumbing parts if you want to, but if you are a male or you are a female, that's it. That's, what God, that's how God has created you. When you talk about gender, you talk about what the Bible says. He says male or female. And let me tell you, the greatest thing you'll ever do is to submit to what God, how God has created you, period. Because that's the best plan for your life. God has a purpose for you as a male. God has a purpose for you as a female. And listen, when we change that, we change the purpose of God in our life. He doesn't want you to, he doesn't want men to, to be like women or women to be like men. He created them different. He created male and female. He created us different. And listen, we've, we've bought the lie somehow that if we are different, that means we're unequal. That's not true. Right here in the scripture, you see, he says, we created them male and female. He didn't say we created him and then we created the, the female a little lower than him. That's a lie. That's not true. That's not what Christians believe. That's not what the Word of God teaches. Listen, when you're trying to change your gender or deny your gender, you're denying the plan and purpose of God for your life. It's not just changing who you are. It's changing the purpose that God has for you and your life. And and listen, He calls us and He has a purpose for us. And as we submit to that, that's the greatest thing we could do in our life. And if we struggle with those things, we got to submit to God. This is what he said. This is how he created me. This is who he made me to be, regardless of what the culture says, regardless of how we feel. A lot of times people feel like they don't feel worthy or they don't feel like they have value. So they want to change who they are. Listen, the greatest value you can have, value you can have is what God has created you to be. So he says, male or female, if you're male, that's, who, that's the greatest value you're going to have and your value in your life you're going to have is being who God created you to be as a male. If you're a female, that's the greatest value you're going to have is by God creating you to be that. And when you try to change that, you don't just change who you are, you're changing God's plan and purpose for your life. He created them differently, but equally. Differently in that males and females are different, Right? We know this. Listen, uh, for males, we're physically different. There's no denying that a male is physically different. That's why you talk about uh, males and females competing in the same sports. There's a physical advantage to a male competing against a female physically. It is part of what God has created for us. Physically, they're different. Men are socially different. 
Do you see groups of men going to the bathroom together? No, you don't, right? We don't ever sit around at a Bible study and say, hey, you got to go to the bathroom? Yeah, let's go. Like four or five of us go to the bathroom together. But you see that with women, right? You do see that. They're socially different. Men are different in their family function. God has a design for a man, a husband, a, a father to do in the family that no one else could do. Now, if there's not a male present, a female can step up and try to do the job, but in the original intention that God had created a man for that purpose and for that plan. And in a marriage, in a home, it is right for the man to fulfill that family function. They, it's different than what females do. When a husband tries to be the wife and the wife tries to be a husband or the mom tries to be a dad or a dad tries to be uh, the mom, it's different. It's not all that God has created it to be. Same with, with females. We know they are physically different. Like I said, they're socially different. They are different in the role in a marriage. They are different in the role in the family. It's different does not mean unequal. Whoever taught that or whoever believes that is a lie. And if you've heard a pastor or a preacher, or if you've heard a, a Christian person say that females are not as important or not as valuable as men, they're lying. That is a straight up lie. Listen, Christianity stands on its record. Jesus and God never devalues women. He's always uplift, uplifted women. He's always uplifted who they are and how he's created them. And even back from the very beginning, he said that they are equal, different, but equal. And the culture tries to put a wedge between that. They try to say, well, if one is different, then one must be superior to the other. That's not true. It's not what the Bible teaches, and it's not how it is true. And God created man and woman, and they are different, but they are also equal in value. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 2, we hear a little bit. And I'm just going to run through these verses pretty quick because I think it's an interesting story. So Genesis 1 is written. It's kind of like an outline or kind of goes through the process. Genesis 2 comes along like they mostly, uh, like many or most uh, writings of that time would go back and fill in some details. So kind of like talking a, a short chat with someone. And then when you get home from work or you get more time to talk about it, you come back together and you give more details. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are not two different accounts of creation. It's the same account, one with more details. So when you get to Genesis chapter 2, it fills in a little more details of Genesis chapter 1. So verse 7, here he says, uh, in verse 7 it says, And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. How was man created? From the dust of the ground. See, women, you're expecting a little too much out of us, all right? <laughs> We're just dust. Here. We're sorry to let you down, but we're just dust. God formed us from dust. Literally took dust, created man, and breathed life into his nostrils. Man became a living breath or a living being because God breathed life into him. Then you drop down to verse 18, and the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him, a suitable helpmate. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. That'd be a pretty cool job, huh? I'd call that one a zebra and I'll call that one a, you know, an elephant. I'll call that one a monkey. He, he named them. And Adam gave names to the cattle. This is verse 20. To the cattle, to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was no found, found no helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. 
That's what happens on Sundays around my house. That's, this is my excuse. When I take a nap, I just fall into a deep sleep. And as he slept, he took one of his ribs. Tell Adam wasn't a fat guy, right? You don't take fat people's ribs, all right? He closed up the flesh in his place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. One pastor said that he brought, he brought uh, Eve to Adam and he went, whoa, man. That's how she got her name. All right. I don't know. Eve must have been a looker. All right. But he was impressed. And he said, listen, that's him. That's who that's for me. This is who God had for me. This is God's suitable helpmate for me. This is my completer. This is who God made for me out of my bones, out of my flesh. And it was taken out of me. And now God says you are to be together. Look at verse 24. This is the verse we read. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Chapter 2, and we already have our first mention of marriage. We already have our first mention of a relationship between a man and a woman, as we call marriage. And, and here is the first mention, as we talked about, it has some very important principles. For those who have ever heard me at a, at a wedding, I always share these, and they're very important. There are three things that have to be essential to every marriage. If, they're not in these, if this is not part of your marriage, then it will not work. Uh, and the principles are, are easy. I, uh, I got these from a pastor um, that used to pastor First Baptist Church of Dallas, and I'll never forget them, and I hope you never forget them either. Leave, cleave, and weave. Those are the three things he says. You could tell he was Baptist, right? They all three rhymed, and it was three points. Leave, cleave, and weave. He says that a man shall leave his mother, father and mother. You know what that means? That your parent relationship is very important, right? You have a relationship with your parents is very important. And it's, up, it's so important that up to that point, when you decide to come into a marriage, that that relationship that was the most important in your life on an earthly relationship now becomes secondary to your marriage relationship. Man, let me tell you, if you're setting your scale of how important a marriage relationship is, that's really high. That's really high because it says those who brought you into this world and those who raised you and brought you and nurtured you along, now you have come to this new relationship with this spouse, with this woman, or with this man. And now this relationship is more important than even your parent parental relationship. Listen, it's not saying that we should abandon our family. We should tell our mothers and fathers to have nothing to do with our lives anymore. But what it does is it sets the tone. It sets the importance of how honored and how respected your marriage relationship should be. And listen, if you don't get this, there's going to be a lot of trials and tribulations in your marriage. Because when you enter into your marriage and you make it the number one priority in your life, then that means that your spouse has become your number one partner. That you're not to run to your parents for all the answers anymore. You're not to run to your parents to, to, to find comfort and to find a, a way out of, of however you're feeling. That now, as husband and wife, you are committing to one another even more than you've ever committed to your physical relationship or your relationship with your parents. And I know this is a struggle because there's a lot of family and friends and there's a lot of close people in your life. And not just this isn't just for parents, this is even for friends. 
And when you get married, your best friend now is secondary to your husband or your wife. If you get married and there's another person that's more important than your relationship with your husband or wife, there's a problem. And God says that those relationships now are secondary. And the most influential person in your life on this earth now is your spouse. That the priority that you must have is now to that spouse. And it's not to your mom. It's not to your dad. It's not to your brother or your sister or your friend. It is now to your spouse. It is a commitment that's higher than any other commitment on the face of the earth. That no matter what you go through, what trials you go through, your heart, your pain, your joys, your sorrows should be shared now with your spouse. That's where you go. That's how God is going to make it. That's how you must prioritize it in your life. And you will not have the joy or the peace or your marriage will not function proper, properly if you don't make your spouse your top priority. It is, it is setting the standard. It's setting the tone. And listen, this is even more than your children. I love my children. I, I love them with all my heart. But they are secondary to my relationship with Aaron. That, that my relationship to my spouse is the most important thing as companion on the face of this earth. And it's more important than anything else. We must make it a top priority in our life. And I encourage you as we begin this series to look at your marriage relationship. How, how high a priority is it? Do you value your relationship with your parents or with a friend or with someone else more than you value your relationship with your husband or your, or your wife? If you do, you don't have the priority set right. It, it's you and your spouse above all else, period. It, it doesn't matter how we come or who comes into our life, that we must keep that our number one priority. And like the Word of God says, you leave even your mother and your father. All the relationships that are up to that point are now secondary to that relationship. That you are committed to your spouse regardless of anyone else in your life. And I know this plays out in trivial ways. You know, what your mom says compared to what your husband says or what your dad says compared to what your wife may say. But as we learn through our marriage that the top priority now is not what your mom and dad may prefer. It's not what her mom and dad may prefer. It's not what your friend may prefer. It's what you guys do together because now you are top priority and top commitment. So you leave, then you cleave. This is an old-fashioned word. But in the Bible, it says to be joined to his wife uh, meaning that this is to be cleaved together, that it is a, a grip that does not let go. Like it, you hold on to one another, one another regardless of what happens or regardless of what happens in life. It is a grip that cannot be broken. Um, I shared this example before in this illustration, but I think it's, it's really, really funny. And all my kids every week, they always say, all right, Dad, what kind of story are you going to tell about me this week? Okay. Well, this week it's Tucker's turn, all right? So it's Tucker's turn this week. When we were uh, at a lake house that Aaron's mom and dad used to have, and uh, we were on the jet ski and we were trying to teach him how to hydroslide. And so, you know, at the point of hydrosliding where you got to get off your stomach onto your knees, there's that point where, and yet you guys are looking at me like I've never hydroslided before. <laughs> I have. It wasn't behind a jet ski, it was behind a, a jet boat maybe, but I have, I have been on a hydroslide before. All right. And you know that point to where you got to get from your, your, you know, your stomach up to your knees. And right at that point, it becomes really, really hard to hold on to. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, just you let go because you don't think you're going to make it. And you just let go. And next, you know, you go down in the water. So you got to turn around. You got to go back. And they got to find the board and get back on the board. And they got to get the strap just right. It takes forever. And so I was like, okay, I got an idea. 
And so Tucker gets on there, and we're going, and right to the point where he's almost to let go, I see him. He's about to let go. I say, alligator, there's an alligator. And all of a sudden, his knuckles turn white. Whoop, like... <laughs> He made it four laps around the lake without even letting go. Like, all of a sudden, he would not let go. Uh, listen, that's what, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about having a grip that no matter what happens, let me tell you, stuff's going to happen. I think one of the hardest pains in a parent's life or a husband and wife is seeing their children suffer. That's hard. It's a hard thing to see a child suffer. It's a hard thing to see him go through sickness or pain. It's tough. And yet, as we look together for one another, that that grip should be so strong that regardless of what we go through as a family, regardless of what happens to our income, regardless of what happens with our jobs or our family or our status symbols, that as the two of you come together, you are agreeing that no matter what happens, you are never, ever going to let go of one another. That, that if no matter if the world crashes down, you can rely on that person to be there with you, even to the very end, gripped together, 100%. So you got to leave, you got to cleave. The last one is weave. It says that the two shall become one. And listen, this really is the joy of marriage. You know, I say this all the time, opposites attract, but they also irritate, right? And so in the first few years of your marriage, after you have put your best foot forward and all of a sudden you start seeing the other side of the you know, things. And so everything that you thought was cute and funny now is annoying and bothersome, right? <laughs> and so as those things begin to work itself out, you realize that not only do you have, that you have things that you want your spouse to work on, but there are things that you need to work on, Right. And you realize that as the two of you come together, where one may not have patience, the other one helps you gain patience. Where one may not have kindness, the other one brings kindness. And all of a sudden, it takes two people who are not completed or have, who need help in those areas. God puts you together and you weave your life together to where you're almost like one person. That God brings the joy of marriage together when he brings two people to make them whole together. That means that when you see someone, you don't say, oh, that's just Ted, or that's just Aaron. You say, that's Ted and Aaron. It's a togetherness. It's a oneness. It's a oneness that takes everything in life, and it takes it together. That if you face a heartache or a pain or a trial, you know it's half because your partner's standing right next to you. If it's a joy, you know it's doubled because not only do you get to enjoy it, but you know your spouse enjoys it too. And listen, when you come together and you weave your lives together, all of a sudden you can know what the person is going to say in a certain situation. You know what they're going to order at a restaurant most of the time. All right. You got to give us guys a little bit of uh, a little bit of leeway because women change, right? Like they, they go through ordering the same thing a thousand times and you go to order it one time and all of a sudden it's the wrong thing that they, they wanted to change it that time. <laughs> And so as you go together, you learn what they like, what they don't like. You learn how to aggravate, how not to aggravate. You learn how to, uh, what they're going to say and what they're not going to say or how they're going to react or how they're going to treat your kids or how they're going to do certain things in life. That's the joy of marriage. But sadly, most people never get to this point. They never get to this point because there's only one way to get to this point, and that's to spend time together. And if our culture has done anything, it's to separate the husband and wife. The husband goes one way and the wife goes the other way. And listen, our culture puts a high value on possessions and things and it's just the way that it is. 
and, and we have two income homes and we have a lot of things. We have a lot of things we got to do. And yet, if we're not careful, if we don't make it a priority and invest time in one another, we grow apart and we don't become one. We don't become one like God has a plan for us. But let me tell you, if there needs to be sacrifices made in your life, if there needs to be sacrifices made in the way that you do things, it shouldn't be you going one place, your husband going to other, the other all the time. It should be you guys going together. That you spend time together and weaving your life together. There's nothing sweeter than seeing a couple who's been married 50 or 60 years and how they are truly one. That they truly are like one person. And that's the way God says, hey, it's just the beginning. As we begin to work our way through marriage, I hope this morning that as we scratch the surface that you would be willing to fight for your family. You're willing to fight for your home and your life. And listen, it doesn't matter where you are. It matters if you acknowledge God in your life. He can change anything. And you might say, well, I'm not even married. Well, when I was single, they always say, are you married or single? I said, is there a hopeful box on there too? Because I hope to be married one day. And you might not be married, but let me tell you, if you're thinking about marriage, you feel like, well, why should we be married? Why should we be married? We should be married because that's the way God designed it. Because God's design is best. I'm going to tell you, in life, there's, you're not going to improve on God's plan. It's the best that it could be. And when it works and it's in God's will and it's in his purpose in his life, it's the, it's the greatest thing you'll ever experience. If it's not, it might possibly be the worst thing you ever experience because you're not functioning in the way that God has called you to function. So this morning, as we begin to think about these things, let's pray together and consider the word of God together this morning. Let's pray.